Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. I am very excited about today's episode. Get out a piece of paper and a pencil because we've got Louis McIntyre. When Louis McIntyre talks, people listen. So we're going to go over some really important details here on some stuff that I find really quite fascinating that's uh, really outside the clinical perspective of orthopedics, but I think are really important to, as we move on forward. So Louis, welcome to the show, brother. Scott, uh, thank you so much for the uh, gracious invite. And uh, uh, maybe some people listen to me, but certainly no one in this house that I live in. <laughs> well, we're in the same boat on that one, that's for sure. <laughs> so Louis is a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon from White Plains, New York. Uh, he was uh, on the board of the Arthroscopy uh, uh, Association in North America forever. He's a past president of Anna as well. And it's interesting because you've taken a little bit of a curve here now, a little pivot in your career you're still a, a practicing orthopedic surgeon, but now you're a member of the Thurston Group, where you're the chief quality officer uh, for the U.S. Orthopedic Partners, which is basically an MSO and a private equity group. So we're going to have to get into that's chunky, great stuff. We'll have to get into that. But before we go there, I want to talk about some of our shared history and uh, some of the things that we've done together. And one of the things is uh, is the cow patch. You know, I know that Martha Shaden is probably listening and she always gets upset, right? She's like, Scott, it's not a patch. It's an implant. <laughs> so uh, yes, Martha, we'll call it the implant. So we started off very early with Rotation Medical, some of the earliest adopters of that uh, collagen implant. And uh, I remember vividly sitting around the table trying to figure out protocols and and then your first time up at Anna. And the, it was like the green tomatoes were being thrown up there and and then the second time you went up there, it was like nothing ever happened. So just, I'd love to just chat with you about your experience with the with the the rotation medical uh, the rotation medical implant, or now called the Regenitem bovine bioinductive implant. And what were your thoughts in the process of that whole development? Sure, and, and thanks. And you know, as you know, uh, anyone who does a lot of uh, shoulder work, uh, shoulder arthroscopic work, especially rotator cuff work, which was really the bulk of my uh, business um, knows that uh, we have an incredible uh, problem with getting rotator cuffs to heal. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we, we've been treating a biologic problem as a mechanical problem for a hundred years since uh, uh, Codman first wrote his book in the in 1930s. So, uh, okay. Uh, tendon tear we fix, right? So, but tendon tear we fix doesn't heal, right? Uh, you know, high uh, retear rates, high really non-healing rates. So 
uh, we're all looking for the secret sauce to try to enhance those healing rates to improve outcomes. And when I first uh, saw the uh, the bioinductive implant, I was at a Anna meeting and I was sitting next to uh, um, JT Tokish, and he leaned over to me and he said, "Bullshit." <laughs> That's what he said, and I was like, "Yeah, but you know what? It's you know, it's kind of a cool idea." And that fall, I had a chance to do a lab in New York City um, with David uh, Hook, and I said, "You know what? I'm going to give this a try because." The uh, instrumentation was such that it really facilitated the procedure. I looked at the, you know, I looked at the science behind it and the uh, the increased uh, tendon thickness uh, by Dor uh, Bokar uh, in uh, Australia, and I gave it a try. And the first patient I I used it on was a gal who was sent to me by a friend of mine from Hawaii, and she had had a procedure on one side and it had a really bad outcome, and she had a partial thickness tear and adhesive capsulitis. And, um, you know, we, we got her motion back and then I treated the partial thickness tear and she, she did great. And it was like, wow. And the dichotomy between the side to side difference was such that I said, you know what, maybe there's something to this. So I started to, uh, implement, um, the patch for all partial thickness tears that I, that I took care of. Part of the value that we realized the, the implant had was early on in the recovery period. And we wanted to, ca- we wanted to capture that information because boy, if you're a patient, you want to know that, Hey doc, when can I drive a car again? Hey doc, when I can I go back to work? When, you know, blah, blah, blah. What can I do? What, I mean, when can I go back to whatever? Right? So the value of uh, increased or, or a accelerated um, recovery phase is significant for the patient, Right. So not, not for the orthopedic surgeon. And so that's, well, that's a very, no, I, well, I, th- I think for the orthopedic surgeon too, because, Hey, it makes you look good. Well, no, I agree right? with you there, but what, what I mean, <laughs> that's because you and I drank the Kool-Aid and we get it. Right? And so you look better, your patients do better. And like to this day, I mean, I have two patients a day now that come in to see me with an MRI who are scheduled for surgery with another orthopedic surgeon who say, I have these friends that have had the cow patch. They've done amazingly well. Am I a candidate for the surgery? So, so if you're a patient-centric doctor, that, that information that we provided for our patients and documented uh, with our own living eyes, right? We were seeing things that we hadn't seen before. We were watching people do better than what they should be doing. They were getting out of their sling faster. They were having less pain and returning to function faster. And it was it was a unique thing that we were witnessing. So, you know, kudos to you for being able to with Martha and the team. And and I'm really was very pleased to be able to include my patients in that study as well, so that we could show that the patient experience was so much better in the initial phases of rotator cuff repair. Well, once again. Uh, data rules. He with the data rules, right? So if you don't have it, uh, you're 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 really powerless to to make any claims or advocacy or whatever because you know you really there's you don't have a leg to stand on in in an uh, in an uh, era of evidence based medicine, whatever you want to call that. So I mean, what the, uh, you know, I took uh, the the reason why I was so focused on the the, the evidence was because of my experience in uh, the advocacy realm with uh, trying to um, support the value that orthopedic surgeons bring to healthcare. And, you know, you know, in in terms of negative coverage decisions for certain procedures, in terms of um, uh, 
decreased valuations at the uh, uh, the RUC committee of the AMA. And, you know, a lot of times we didn't have the data to support the contention that we actually added value. So um, I think this is a real illustration of that point is when you have it, you can do some you can do some big things. This new thing I'm doing now, so I'm the chief quality officer of um, U.S. Orthopedic Partners, and my job is to institute uh, quality programs in all of our uh, partner practices. And what does that mean? Uh, well, that means collecting outcomes data, right? So, um, so you know, outcomes data is important for uh, compliance, for quality control, for um, marketing, for patient engagement, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're doing any kind of risk-based um, payment paradigms, like a bundled payment program, you have to have outcomes data uh, along with your financial data to show that, hey, you know, number one, you're you're saving money, and the, and number two, the patients are getting better, and and how are they getting better? I, I think we should embrace it, and I think that it will make us a stronger profession uh, when we have widespread outcomes collections amongst all orthopedic surgeons in the United States. Yeah, no, I think that that's great counsel. I mean, I can tell you personally, it was incredibly gratifying to sort of be a part of that process as we rolled through with the, with the bovine implant and, and changing the mindset, you know, as we talked about from that first time you presented to the second time you presented, it was sort of just matter of fact. It was just, you walked up, you gave your presentation, you walked off the stage. And, and I think that that, that precedent that has been set, I think, will hopefully change the way in which we develop these this evidence-based medicine so that, you know, most of what we read in these journals is level three data. I mean, it doesn't really, it's you know, it doesn't help yeah. us. It's been passed down. It's, a, it's the same stuff that's being, you know, mulled over and over again. I do think that there's a wave now of the younger residents and fellows that are, are really engaged in that process. And I think you're a big part of why that's happening. So before we jump into the private equity thing, which is really fascinating, um, it ties also into to what we were just talking about as far as bundled payment and that sort of thing. But you wrote a pretty Im- impressive editorial in the Green Journal, the Journal of Arthroscopy. And I'm going to read the title because I think it's uh, it's really pretty amazing. And you, uh, I don't know if you saved it until you sort of decided to not be in, much in clinical practice anymore so you could piss the people off and not care. But uh, <laughs> I love it anyway because it is incredibly thought-provoking. So the name of the title is a rigged game surgeon reimbursement under the resource-based relative value scale, also known as the RBRVS, current procedural terminology and the Affordable Care Act. And basically, you know, you just you just go right in and and talk about how hospital reimbursement has been really dialed up and going through the roof over decades while doctors have been static. Uh, and then you come up with some really cool ideas and solutions. So I really want to, I want to dive into the paper a little bit, the editorial, because I really found it, you know, quite fascinating. So, so what drove you, obviously this was something that's been, you've been thinking about for a long time. And so you penned it and, and what was the impetus? What was the reason to get this thing out right now? Well, the uh, impetus, I, I was asked to write an editorial comment to the paper that was written by uh, LaProd et al. out of Mayo concerning uh, arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and uh, the economics of that uh, procedure between 2005 and 2014, a 10-year period there, where they looked at hospital reimbursement and surgeon reimbursement and anesthesia reimbursement uh, concurrently running through those 10 years. And what they noticed was 163% increase 
in what the hospital was paid uh, and like a three or five percent increase in what the anesthesiologist was paid and an absolute flat line for what the surgeon was paid. So in that 10 year period, our reimbursement stayed stuck. Of course, that means that we actually lost ground because of inflation, while the hospital more than doubled their their take. Right. And during that same time frame, they uh, 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 also noted that, uh, you know, the administrative portion of the hospital increased significantly and hospital CEO pay increased 93 percent. So the the uh, the editorial was in direct uh, to to sort of uh, look at that paper, but I mean I put you know ideas that Bill Beach and I had been developing for a long time in our relationship with the uh, the uh, resource based relative value update committee you know uh, of the AMA where we sat for you know uh, fourteen years trying to you know uh, uh, get a fair value for what we do in the marketplace and. You know, so my study led me to, you know, look at what RBRVS actually was. And, you know, I, obviously it came out of the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Shu in uh, the late uh, 1980s it was implemented in 1992. And the, the explicit reason for RBRVS was actually to decrease what they know, termed as overvalued surgeon, historically overvalued surgeon reimbursement. So the, the stated goal of RBRVS was to decrease our reimbursement, and it's been amazingly successful in that regard. So in the last 25 years, uh, many orthopedic uh, surgical procedures have lost 40% of their value uh, in relative dollars. But if you look at them in 1992 dollars, it's up to 68%. So when I was a resident, my um, mentors were getting about $8,000 to do a total joint. Now you get $1,200. Right. I, I don't know how it's changed so much, but uh, in regards to workload, uh, but uh, certainly the reimbursement has come way down. Now, um, is that fair? Well, I don't know. Uh, you can't really say because we don't have a market. And this points to the other problem that we have is since we don't have any price, we have no market. And that's what all these things like the RUC are there. I call them value surrogates. So since we don't have a price, we have to come up with value surrogates like MIPS, like uh, PQRS, uh, like all this other stuff, the, all these hoops you have to jump through to arrive at reimbursement since you since you can't say what the price is. Right, which basically so, in- increases the cost of the system because those are non-clinical workers that are having to do all that. So you're yeah. not taking care of patients. You're spending lots of money to fill your office. I mean, you know, the assumption is always that, you know, hey, doctors are, you know, they do great. They're this and, you know, Healthcare and the cost of healthcare is being driven by the doctors as well. But the, the truth be told, and and you outline it, you know, quite clearly, you know, we haven't had, had a pay raise in, in in forever. If anything, we're static. We're, we're we're actually being reduced, and and we've been asked to see more patients, and then we've also been asked to to do more for those patients for clicking buttons and moving papers around and things like that. So it can be, you know, it's a really it's a high volume way to do business at this point. And that can be very frustrating. And I know that, that many doctors, you know, towards the tail end of their career are already saying, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to move on and, and do something else. So I think that you do provide, you know, I always tell my kids, you know, don't bring me problems, you know, bring me solutions. So I think that there are some answers that can be out there, right? I mean, the, the total joint world, 
has done it pretty well with bundled payments for hip and hip and knee replacements. And certainly hopefully rotator cuffs and ACLs and some of the things that we do might be able to fall into that category as well. What are your thoughts on that? I, I would agree completely. I mean, I think that to really extract all the value that we can out of a clinical episode, we need to be responsible for that episode, the entire episode. Now, whether you call it bundled payments or whether you call it episode of care or whether you call it, um, you know, let's say uh, it's, a, it's an evil word, um, uh, capitating, say, back pain or something like that, right? You assume responsibility or arthritis. I mean, hey, who, who should own arthritis other than orthopedic surgeons, right? We should own it from inception to total joint. So if you own it, you're going to be able to extract all the value out of it. Now, to, to own it, you have to have systems and infrastructure in place to do that. And you have to be able to monitor how your patients are doing, and you have to make sure that they get appropriate care at the appropriate time, and then they're not accessing unnecessary care. I mean, it's a lot of work, but that's the only way for orthopedics to survive outside of just having a hospital administrator tell you what to do, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't know many orthopedic surgeons that want to conduct their lives like that. Um, and uh, so I think that the, the, the hospital solution, which about 17% of us now are hospital employed, I think that's a bad model for orthopedic surgeons. I think it's a bad model for uh, orthopedic surgical patients um, and because the, you know, the people that run those uh, entities don't have patients' best interests at heart. They have their institution's best interest at heart, whereas the orthopedic surgeon who's practicing every day and seeing his patients every day got to have um, you know, his patients' best interests at heart because if he doesn't, uh, he's soon going to be out of business. Yeah, and, and Michael Sook would take it even one step further. He'll say, he'll say I'll do all of that for you, and I'm going to guarantee it. So if the patient has to go back to the operating room, you know, we eat the cost. And for the, for the process of the entire arthritis from beginning to end, I think that's, it's brilliant, right? Why not be able to put everything into, into play, manage it from beginning to end? You have to, you know, take your lumps when, when something doesn't go right. But I think that uh, having more control rather than less control. So I want to segue over to, to the private equity thing. And, I, you know, one thing's for sure, you know, I try to stay in that innovative space, and, and within the innovative space, one thing I know is that, that most people don't like to be there. They like to do it the old school way. They like to do it the way they've been taught. And, and private equity in the purchase of orthopedic practices is really starting to, to gain some, some steam. But I don't think that everybody truly understands what it is. And, and most people have not been approached. So let's just play a little game here for a second. Let's say, all right, I'm an orthopedic surgeon now. I'm in a group of 12 guys. We're not affiliated with a hospital. We're not affiliated with anything else. And I want you to do your pitch, Louie. I want you to tell me why my private practice orthopedic group of subspecialty should be joining in, in with, uh, with the, uh, I want to get this right, the U.S. Orthopedic Partners uh, MSO group so that you can improve our practice. Tell us what you're going to do for us. Sure. Well, the first thing I say is, you know, what's your plan? What's your strategic plan for growth? Right. I mean, what are what are you doing now to grow your practice? And uh, unless I can come up with a plan and a strategy and the capital and the expertise to help that growth, then we shouldn't be sitting down talking. Right. So it's a growth equation. Number one, uh, it's to facilitate the growth, uh, both um, uh, both organic growth in the practice uh, by adding ancillaries and by also acquiring other practices. So 
that is the number one thing. Number two is orthopedic surgeons work a lifetime developing a brand, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a, an entity that they never really see any value from. So, you know, you, you, you get your, your income from the practice and when you leave, you get your accounts receivable, you're paid out according to any kind of ownership you have in any ancillaries and goodbye. Right. I, I have guy, I have friends of mine work for AT&T. They got millions and millions of dollars in stock just for working there for 25 years. Right. Because they, they got value uh, from the company they work for. So the, uh, private equity is a way for orthopedic surgeons to monetize their practices. Right. So we put a value on the practice. And then uh, there's, it's usually based on the EBITDA, the earnings before interest tax depreciation. Um, and uh, uh, there's some type of multiple associated with that based upon the, the, the value. And then that, that's given to the orthopedic surgeons in cash, right? So, so the argument, so here, I'll play, I'll, let's play devil's advocate. We'll go back and forth here a little bit. We'll role play. Okay, so basically what you're going to do then is you're going to provide us future bonuses that we would have gotten over the next five years. You're going to pay us cash for that. Now Uh, we're not going to make as much as we typically would on an annual basis because we've taken some money out. And now how are we going to grow? We need the, you know, the shares need to increase in price in order to, to make this thing work over time. And and how's that going to work? Sure. So um, the, so the, 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 the monetization of the practice is usually divided into two buckets. One bucket is cash up front to the orthopedic surgeon, and that sort of represents, you know, really what we're doing is buying your accounts receivable, right? You know, so uh, your your income is de-risked a bit for a certain time frame. We like to see it for about nine to 10 years. So that, that's assuming no growth, right? So no growth, nine to 10 years, you know, you would have come out equal just based on that cash. The next bucket is equity in the new entity, right? The U.S. Orthopedic Partners. Now, the average return to, on cash for the, the two um, uh, PE groups that I'm working for is 3.2. So between three and five years after putting these things together, what happens is they get sold. And the, you know, the, the baseline return is 3.2. High can be 6.2. So FFL just sold uh, iCare Partners for $2.1 billion. The return was 6.2. So there's real inherent value in that moving forward. Um, yes, certainly you do take a reduction in your uh, yearly income. It depends on the PE uh, firm, how much that is. At. But then we also have a, a program of what we call income repair. So our job is to get you at least back to where uh, you were when we, um, when, we, when we pulled the trigger and bought your practice so that you really don't see any diminution in income whatsoever. And, and how do we do that? Well, we have to have a growth strategy. So the people we like to partner with, well, they need a surgery center or they need a bundle payment program, or they need a new spine surgeon, or they need a new facility, or they want to move into another area, right? It's, it's, a, it's not just, oh, we're going to buy your practices. Oh, we're going to buy your practice and we're going to do X. Now you certainly could do that on your own. So do all of these orthopedic groups that you're, you're bringing into the fold, do they all roll up into U.S. Orthopedic Partners, or is there a separate MSO for each one of them? No, our philosophy, and this is different from you know, di- you know, I mean, every all PE is not equal, right? So uh, some might want to have one single tax ID for all the you know all the partnerships, whatever. We don't want to do that. You know, we don't. 
our goal is to, to disrupt your practice in a minimal fashion, right? We don't want it disrupted at all because we want your productivity to be maintained at a high level. We know that you do a good job running your practice. You do a good job managing your practice. So let's not screw that up. So we keep your tax ID. We keep all your, your leadership uh, intact. In we keep your, you know, your, we have a great board management document that's really position friendly. Um, uh, and um, uh, each practice maintains their name, maintains their identity. Uh, the MSO is behind the scenes, right? It, 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 we, what we like to say, unless you read Becker's, we don't want any, nobody would know that you're part of USOP, right? So, uh, because, you know, I think there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of different ways to consolidate. You could become a hospital employee. Obviously, there's a lot of problems with that, right? Uh, you could uh, form an umbrella group. Um, and guys are doing this all over the country. They get one tax ID. They put it all together. It costs a significant amount of money to do that. And then guess what? You know, you got to recredential everybody. That could take months. Your, you know, your, your, you know, your, your, your accounts receivables are going to accrue to each individual, individual practice. And then you have this new tax ID. Then it starts ramping up. I mean, that's some significant disruption. And, you know, I have talked to some people who have done this and, um, some of these things crash and burn because of some of these transitional issues. Uh, some are successful, uh, you know, uh, for example, um, um, Center for Advanced Orthopedics in Maryland, they have 176 docs now. They were rolled up into an umbrella group and uh, they're doing pretty well. Uh, they've been able to negotiate higher rates, but some of the, you know, for example, one of my friends got higher rate. Uh, he got a rate increase of about 25%, but his, his Blue Cross Blue Shield rates were 80% of Medicare when he signed up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, you pick your poison. You know, the reason why I'm fascinated by the PE is because of the, the way to, it's a way to monetize your, your business. Um, it's a growth strategy. It's got, uh, you know, value up front in the cash. It's got value down the road with other equity events. Equity events mean purchases um, uh, for, you know, three to five times return for your cash on that. Um, you know, obviously it's got to ma be managed correctly. It's got to be transitioned correctly. And, and you have to have, like I said, back to square one, a growth strategy. And then uh, on these sale events, you know, let's say it's three to five years and there's a flip that's going to happen and you've gone three to five times EBITDA. Um, you have to imagine that the, the group that's going to be coming in to, to purchase is still going to need to be remaining partners with this orthopedic practice because you need, the income and the profitability of the orthopedic practice to have the sale be, you know, worthwhile. Correct. So everybody's concerned, rightly so, about the second equity events. So what's that going to look like, and how's that going to change my governance structure? And you know, what we like to tell people is that, hey, you know, the assets in this, uh, the assets in this business can walk if they don't like the documentation that describes the um, the governance of the new entity then they just say, we don't want to be part of this. Now, you can't have much of a business if you don't have orthopedic surgeons. So, you know, um, we have not gone through a second equity event yet. And I, I don't think anybody in the United States has. There's about, I mean, there's a good, there's an article in Becker's today. There's about 10 of these things that have gone on. The biggest is uh, Orthopedic Care Partners down in Florida. They, they, uh, they signed the Stedman Group in 2019. Then you get uh, Kohlberg. They did ONS and they just signed another group in Middletown. 
they're about 34 guys now. Then there's the um, the uh, at, at, uh, the Atlantic Street Group out of uh, Stanford, Connecticut. They bought Ortho Bethesda. Those are the and then there's us. And then there's you know there's there's couple, there's a few others that have done deals with device companies and uh, you know other things. But um, those are the big ones that I'm familiar with. And like I said, it's a young business. It, it, it's a young model. There's much more um, experience in derm, opho, um, dental. So, so how many group practices do you have now that are under the USOP umbrella? Now, probably the wrong word, but under the USOP MSO. One. We just signed our first uh, last month. Um, should close Monday. Um, you know, obviously COVID did impact our, you know, our, our timeline. Um, but you know, we're still, you know, we still move through that uh, pretty well. Um, uh, right now we have two other groups under a letter of intent. Once you sign a letter of intent, you know, you're sort of pre, you know, you're committing because that's when both sides are spending money on legal and, uh, you know, uh, accounting. Um, so it's pretty much, you know, you're, you're going to do it. It's a question of, uh, do the numbers make sense? And then we have uh, another four groups that we've valued. So, you know, the, the, so the, the, the timeline is you sort of uh, approach a group, uh, you decide whether you want to move forward at all with a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, then you have an initial valuation. That process can take two to three to four weeks. Then you, you, you know, if uh, the, if the, you negotiate, a, there's a negotiation on the price. Uh, and then once uh, everybody's happy with the, the, uh, the financial arrangements, then an L, a letter of intent, an LOI is signed. Uh, then the due diligence uh, goes forward. We have a third party that comes in and uh, evaluates uh, the deal. And um, uh, that can take between uh, four to uh, you know, 12 weeks. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a heavy lift. So the whole process is, a you know, could be, you know, uh, it could be as short as four to five months. It could be as long as, you know, a year. You know, it's interesting, you know, as the chief medical officer of Wortholaser, you know, it sounds like what you're experiencing is similar to what we experienced, which was, you know, everything pretty much shut down during COVID, but we're really finding now that, that people are, are coming out and they're excited about new ideas, new business plans. And, uh, conceptually new, new, uh, new ways in which to, to do business. So we're seeing pretty similar ideas here now too, where we're getting a lot of people that are seem to be much more interested in, in moving forwards. Right. I think for a couple of months ago, nobody wanted to talk to anybody about anything until we knew we had confidence that we were coming out of this thing. Right. And, you know, unfortunately any, anything, any tremendous stress like this puts amazing pressures on problems that already existed, right? So if, 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 if orthopedic groups and private practice were stressed before this, well, now they're really stressed, right? So now they gotta, they got to think differently in regards to how they're going to move forward. Um, and uh, it puts all, that, uh, all the bad stuff on steroids. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, way to just sort of move forwards and, and try new and different things. And I can tell you right now, I mean, I, I can't imagine trying to get 12 orthopedic surgeons to agree on anything can be, you know, incredibly difficult. So 
the challenge of being able to bring everybody together to make a mutual decision has to be uh, sometimes overwhelming. Well, the, the only thing you can get them to agree on is that they're better than the other 12 guys that they just talked <laughs> There you go. That's a classic <laughs> orthopedist <laughs> response for sure. Uh, Louie, this was great. This is uh, you know a real deep dive on some really important topics you know, outside of necessary clinical medicine. What we do is as much of a business as it is as you know, caring for patients. So it was nice to be able to really, you know, get some details on, on some stuff that has always been very complicated for me to understand. So you really, you know, put it together very nicely for us. Well, thank you very much. And everybody should take a look at Ortho Laser. It's a very cool idea. Well, we appreciate that, Louis. Maybe we'll do some business together on that one day, too. Maybe. <laughs> I like that a lot. All right. Speaking of which, I'm going to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.